Welcome to episode five of the Bit Block Boom podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and I'm the producer of the Bit Block Boom Bitcoin conference. And just for reference, I also host the Crypto Cousins podcast, the Railroaded podcast, and the Four Minute Crypto Show. You should be able to find those podcasts wherever you're listening to this podcast, iTunes, Google, or wherever. Now, in August, I'll host another Bit Block Boom Bitcoin conference in Dallas, Texas, of course, with the help of some of my friends. If you have any kind of interest in Bitcoin, you really need to visit bitblockboom.com and look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around Bitblockboom. Bitblockboom is a Bitcoin conference, and I really do mean a Bitcoin conference. And if you decide to come and you sign up, use the code word COUSINS, C-O-U-S-I-N-S, when purchasing your conference tickets, and you'll receive 30% off the price uh, at this year's events. Now, in today's episode, I'm bringing you another session from the first BitBlockBoom Bitcoin conference that was held in 2018. And this episode features a session by Nick Baccia. In case you're not familiar with Nick, he writes great articles about Bitcoin. You should take a look. Today's session, though, from Nick is titled The Time Value of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Capital Markets. Like I said, this was a great session. I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening. BitBlockBoom! Thank you. Thank you, Tony and Gary, for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you also to Pierre for uh, hooking up with the organizers. Uh, my name is Nick Batia. I work as an interest rate trader in Los Angeles for an investment manager called Peyton and Regal. And uh, what he was referring to is that we are a SEC-regulated entity, and I needed to make sure that there were no conflicts of interest uh, to publish some information about my thoughts on Bitcoin. And um, I got the green light uh, when I uh, found out about this conference. And so I started writing and publishing on Medium about Bitcoin capital markets. A little bit about me to start. Um, I went to USC and studied the Keynesian version of economics, unfortunately. Uh, but thankfully, uh, I had some really good influences in the Austrian world so that I didn't get too lost down the, the wrong path, I guess, from an economic standpoint. Uh, I went to Spain for business school and got a master's in finance there. Um, a CFA charter holder, which is a financial designation for the asset management industry. And uh, like I said, I trade U.S. trade, U.S. Treasuries, U.S. Treasury futures, and other interest rate futures uh, for a large investment manager. Uh, and I'm also on the interest rate strategy team, so trading, but also setting strategy for our clients. And then, really quickly, before I go on, I got into Bitcoin uh, a few years ago. I had heard about Bitcoin. Uh, for a long time through the Austrian school and people uh, of that nature, uh, but dismissed it uh, as some sort of scam or Ponzi scheme at the beginning, like many people have done. But it was because I never dove into the cryptography, the technology, uh, the consensus rules, and the rest of it. And when I, when I started to do so, it clicked pretty quickly for me. And ever since then, I've been... Uh, pretty staunch Bitcoin maximalist. So my talk, a um, little bit of an overview here. 
talking specifically about the Lightning Network and how the Lightning Network can help Bitcoin capital markets evolve. The Lightning Network, in my opinion, is without direct counterparty default risk. I am not saying that Lightning Network is without risk. There are definitely risks to having Bitcoin in the Lightning Network. For example, your Bitcoin is no longer in cold storage. It's on a hot online wallet environment. And you also have the risk of losing your funds if you don't manage your payment channels correctly. For example, if, some, if your counterparty in, the, in your payment channel decides to broadcast a previous state of the channel where they have more Bitcoin than is the actual state of the channel, they can steal that Bitcoin from you. However, you are given uh, the option to broadcast the what's called the anti-cheat transaction or what I refer to as an embedded call option in that contract and that allows you to call back your funds uh, and that's why I believe that there is no direct counter counterparty default risk because you do have that option and there's also the uh, expiry of your uh, HTLC in which once it once the uh, contract reaches its expiration, you get your, your funds back even if they're held in limbo for a while. Lightning Network allows for interest rate calculations. This is, this is the big thing that uh, I want to disseminate to people here, is that interest is basically just requires three things. You need how much money you started with, your principal, how much income you made, which in the Lightning Network is going to be your routing fees, and the amount of time it took to do so, which in Bitcoin and HTLCs is going to be expressed in block time. Now, we can calculate interest on your Lightning Network payment channels, but there is no consensus way right now to do so. I haven't even seen it expressed as an actual interest rate percentage. I've seen people talk about how they're making satoshis here and there in their Lightning from their Lightning Network nodes, but nobody's really expressing it as an interest rate yet. And uh, my goal is to convince Lightning wallet providers uh, to start doing this. Reference rate anchor the entire capital market. So what, what I'm talking about here is that the Lightning Network gives us an opportunity to calculate interest. And that interest rate that you can calculate from your Lightning node can serve as a baseline interest rate for the capital market. I'll get into, into that a little bit as well. And then I'll talk about my uh, vision for the future. So I'm going to start with a quote from the, a couple quotes from the Lightning Network white paper. And this is the only thing I'm going to read directly off the screen. The time value of fees pays for consuming time and is conceptually equivalent to a gold lease rate without custodial risk. It is the time value for using up the access to money for a very short duration. That's what Lightning Network is. Historically, one of the largest components of fees and interest in the financial system are from various forms of counterparty risk. In Bitcoin, it is possible that the largest component in fees will be derived from security risk premiums. And what that means to me is that if you are actually taking your Bitcoin out of cold storage, putting it in a hot wallet environment, and staking it to the Lightning Network, that is a risk that you are taking. You are no longer keeping Bitcoin in a cold storage environment. And that risk that you're taking should be rewarded through some sort of fees.
And by the way, uh, the writers of the Lightning Network white paper use the term time value six times uh, throughout the paper. And that's how I uh, developed my Twitter handle and the name of my first article, the time value Bitcoin. Okay, lightning calculations. This is what I refer to. Uh, I've given the formula for a simple interest rate calculation here. A equals P times one plus R to the T. And that's a simple way of saying P is your principal, or the amount of money that you start with. A is the amount of money that you end up with, so your principal plus any fees that you've collected along the way. T is the time it took to do so. In Lightning, we will have, looking backwards, all three of those numbers, and you just solve for R. Simple algebra. That's how we can determine the interest rate that you're earning in Lightning. Now, there are several different ways to do this, and my goal is to start the conversation on how we can calculate Lightning Network interest rates. Uh, we can use several different types of P. You can use the amount of Bitcoin that you started with in a single payment channel. You can use all the Bitcoin staked to all the payment channels that you have. Uh, so there are, very, there are many ways to determine what P is. Uh, a. There are several ways to determine the fees that you're collecting. You can just uh, sum up all the Satoshis that you're making in the Lightning Network from all your channels, from a single channel. You can potentially include the on-chain transaction fees that you have to pay to open and close those channels, or you can not include them. Uh, so, uh, again, A, there are several different ways to calculate it. And then T, what are we going to use for time? Are we going to use uh, human time or earth time, as I had to call it now, because we have to distinguish between block time and earth time. So are you going to use some sort of earth time, regular time? Are you going to use block time? Are you going to use one block at a time, uh, one difficulty adjustment period at a time, which is 2016 blocks, something that I've thought about? Are you going to use the time of each individual HDLC, or your hashed time lock contracts? Um, again, a several different ways to, to assign each one of these variables. And I don't have any uh, magic solution here. Um, I'm also, uh, as you can see, a finance person. I don't have much computer science background outside of learning about uh, you know, the Bitcoin protocol from Andreas's Master in Bitcoin, which I recommend you all read, uh, even for people that aren't into programming. So my goal here is to start the conversation. How can we start to determine some of these variables? And uh, I'll talk in a little bit about why I think it's so important for the Bitcoin community to reach a single calculation method. Although in the beginning, it's probably better that we don't come up with a consensus so that we can try things, uh, try different ways. Okay, LNRR, this is something that I coined in my first article, stands for the Lightning Network Reference Rate. Uh, what this basically means is that is after we've calculated the interest that we're earning from our individual Lightning nodes or our individual payment channels, maybe perhaps we can all publish that information to each other and reach some sort of average. It can be a weighted average, you can take out 
the tails, meaning people that are earning the most and people that are earning the least, and take some sort of average of uh, the median. Um, however it is, if we can come up with a, an average Lightning Network interest rate that we've all earned, we can use this we can use this interest rate as a reference rate and start to build capital markets on top of it. And I'll get, I'll get into that in a second. Um, one of the things that I want to discuss is also LIBOR. So LIBOR has been in the press a bunch over the last decade or so. Um, a lot of scandals with LIBOR and manipulation. But if you just forget about all that, let me just talk about LIBOR for a second and what it is. LIBOR stands for the London Interbank offer rate. And what that is, it's a rate at which banks lend money to each other on a short-term basis. Anyways, that's what it used to be for. Now LIBOR has evolved a little bit since some of the manipulation scandals. But basically what LIBOR is, is a couple dozen banks publishing the rate that they charge to other banks, to each other, on a daily basis, and then you know the bottom few and the top few rates are taken out, and the rest of them are averaged, and that rate, that average rate, is published once a day in London, uh, and the whole capital market uses LIBOR to uh, you know, set interest rates um, for the most part. So I think LIBOR is a great model for the Lightning Network reference rate, uh, forgetting all the manipulation stuff, but just the way that it's determined. People publish the information to each other, some sort of average is uh, calculated, and that average is published to the world so that the world can lend at LIBOR plus a certain spread depending on creditworthiness. So let's talk about the US dollar and reference rates role in the US dollar real quick as an analogy. So one of the things I like to talk about is how we can, in Bitcoin, we can take examples from regular uh, traditional capital markets. Traditional capital markets offer uh, decades of financial innovation and sophistication that we could definitely learn from. However, Bitcoin is something brand new. Uh, it's the most unique monetary asset as Seyfedin has covered in, in at length. Um, and we should definitely be starting from first principles here with the Bitcoin capital market. We shouldn't just blindly take uh, the examples that we get from traditional capital markets and just blindly apply them all to Bitcoin because you're going to fall short. You have to think originally. However, I think there's a lot to be learned from traditional capital markets if we're going to build this, um, build this uh, Bitcoin capital market, denominated Bitcoin. So in the US dollar, I'm going to start with these last two points first. The base currency relies on one country and it relies on a discretionary monetary policy set by uh, the New York Fed, etc. Um, those are both risks that Bitcoin doesn't have. So, um, you know, we can, we can, from the beginning, identify that Bitcoin is a new animal here and that we shouldn't be just following the US dollar's example. Now, in the US dollar, the risk-free asset is US treasuries. Now, why do I put risk-free in quotes? Because we all know that any government can default at any time. There's no rule that says that the US government cannot default. It can happen, it might happen, it might not, but the US Treasury is considered the most credit-worthy counterparty in the US dollar spectrum. And so that is why it's considered the risk-free rate. 
And in traditional finance and capital market theory, we use risk-free rates to give us the baseline rate. For example, the US Treasury 10-year uh, note right now is around 3%, just under 3%. If a bank is gonna lend money to the United States government at 3%, why would they lend money to some uh, growing corporation at less than 3%? They wouldn't, because the US government to them is more creditworthy. So they're gonna lend money to that company at US Treasuries plus an interest rate spread. And that spread represents the creditworthiness relative to the US government. And that's how we use reference rates to build a capital market here. It's basically just setting that baseline interest rate to tell us this is the least amount of credit risk that I'm taking. And if I'm gonna lend to somebody else or some other entity, I'm definitely gonna charge them more than I'm gonna charge the US Treasury. Uh, LIBOR I touched on. OIS is a swap rate using Fed funds. Um, Fed funds is a, is a short-term liquidity interest rate that the that Federal Reserve uh, uses to, to lend to banks and banking institutions. SOFR is a new uh, repo-based reference rate. And I want to talk about SOFR real quick. Most of you probably haven't uh, heard of SOFR, and that's because it's brand new. But I think that SOFR is a very exciting example for Bitcoin and for this idea of LNRR, Lightning Network Reference Rate, uh, for one reason. SOFR was started by uh, the Federal Reserve. They basically started a committee to search for the alternative to LIBOR because of the manipulation problems with LIBOR. And they set this committee, it's called the AARC Alternative ARR's Alternative Reference Rate Committee, something like that. And they took two or three years, thought about all these different ways to come up with a new reference rate, and they played around with different options. They, and they settled on this uh, repo-based reference rate uh, where they take out, again, they take out the tails, and they come up with an average. And uh, SOFR has just started to creep into the market where some swaps are being used with SOFR, and I just saw uh, a couple days ago, the first global agency is planning on issuing a, a bond referring back to SOFR, so using SOFR plus a credit spread. And I think this is, this is really important because it just goes to show you that reference rates don't just happen. We have to plan them as a capital market. And so let's, plan a Lightning Network reference rate together that works for the capital market, and it's not something that we're going to just determine right away. Lightning Network providers hopefully will have different ideas of how to calculate interest. They'll all show them to us on Twitter, and we'll all get to play around with them with our Lightning nodes and see which ones we like better than others. And then through time, we can, we can determine which ones work better than others, and then hopefully come up with a consensus calculation method and use that calculation method to have some sort of reference rate. Now in Bitcoin, the reference rate might change every single block. It might change every single uh, difficulty adjustment period every couple weeks. I have no idea. Uh, again, this, my, my goal here is to start these conversations uh, from, the, from the financial theory perspective. Okay, this uh, is a 
little visual here to just show something very, very basic in finance, which is that the more risk that you take, the more expected return that you, um, you hope to gain. Now, risk can be described in two ways in finance. One is the actual creditworthiness, and the other is a variance of returns. They're used interchangeably, but basically it means that it, if you own something that will go up and down a lot more than something else, that thing is considered more, risk worth, uh, more risky. So here at the bottom, you have U.S. Treasuries, the lowest risk and lowest expected return. Further out the risk spectrum, you have uh, corporate bonds, then public equities, and then venture capital. And of course, these are not the only four points on the U.S. dollar risk spectrum, and not even necessarily the order of least risky to most risky, except for the U.S. Treasuries, because some established equity, uh, let's call it uh, Walmart or Apple, uh, is going to be more, uh, it's going to be less risky than some bond to uh, you know, an oil and gas exploration company that has one project that can have a rig that blows up and then the company goes default, for example. So this is a, you know, a moving picture. Uh, there's also you know, somewhere in there, there's private equity and there's probably even cryptocurrencies or, or Bitcoin somewhere on there as well from the US dollars perspective. And I, I, show this, I show this example um, so that we can talk about how we can think about the Bitcoin risk spectrum. Now, I'm going to focus on this slide for a little bit. So, in the US dollar, the, the treasury is considered uh, the lowest risk asset. Now, in Bitcoin, it's blocked off a little bit there, but in Bitcoin, the lowest risk way to have Bitcoin is to have it in cold storage. We all know this. If, if you, know, you don't have your private keys, it's not your Bitcoin. If it's on an exchange, it's not your private keys, and it's not your Bitcoin, and that is not a low risk situation. You have a direct counterparty risk to that exchange. So cold storage is the first point on the risk spectrum in Bitcoin, in my opinion. And what that means to me is that private key management is the foundation of this entire capital market. And so good private key management techniques um, are being developed and I think that they're pretty robust at this point with the number of hard wallet uh, uh, providers and um, paper wallet methods and the, the BIPs that allow us to use uh, you know these compact English dictionaries to help us uh, store private keys in English words that are easy to remember. Cold storage is the foundation for this entire capital market and we won't be able to build one unless people can rely on their cold storage techniques. The next point is going to be LNRR. And then I have this line here to separate no counterparty risk from counterparty risk. So for all you Game of Thrones uh, fans out there, I like to call this beyond the wall here. And the reason that I draw, draw this wall and talk about beyond the wall is because once you start to take counterparty risk, uh, those private keys are not yours anymore. They're in the, in the custody of an exchange, in the custody of some fund or potentially some ETF. Uh, if and when those things get approved, I have no knowledge of the situation uh, at the SEC. I do hope we will see ETFs soon uh, because there are institutions that don't want to do the no counterparty risk thing. They'd rather take the counterparty risk because 
the counterparty that they have, they trust them more than themselves, right? So some of you out there have coins in your own custody, and some of you have coins that are not in your custody. And I would hope that the people out there that have your coins not in your own custody are doing so because you're not confident in your own opsec. And uh, so this, this line really is going to separate um, everything with counterparty risk and everything without it. Now, my theory here is that LNRR, or what you can make from your lightning node, should be a lower expected return than anything that you can make having your Bitcoin in some sort of off-chain uh, lending uh, environment. For example, um, I have some Bitcoin in cold storage. I want to start a lightning node and start to make some Satoshis on that Bitcoin, but still not taking a direct counterparty default risk, which Again, I don't think that you have in Lightning because you have these uh, couple features in your, um, in your smart contracts that allow you to call your, your funds back. Again, it's not risk-free. You are taking risk, but it's a different type of risk than the risk that you would have if you lent your Bitcoin off-chain. So I see somebody on the street, they say, hey, can I borrow one Bitcoin from you? I'll pay you back 1.1 Bitcoin in a couple months. I say, okay, I will lend you that Bitcoin. What do I have to do at that point? I have to send that person Bitcoin with an on-chain transaction. That Bitcoin is no longer mine. I've sent it to that person's receive address. It's out of my private key. My pri that private key is empty now. And I no longer have Bitcoin. That person has one Bitcoin. How do I get that Bitcoin back from that person? That person has to pay me back. There's nothing I can do on-chain to retrieve that Bitcoin. I have to find that person and say, hey, can I have my money back? And if they don't pay me back, I have to present a contract to a court of law, sue that person, and try to retrieve my funds as much as possible, depending on how well-written that lending contract is that I had with that person. And if I didn't have anything on paper, you know, you're out of luck. You're not going to get that Bitcoin back because... That person's not giving it to you back, and you can't go to a court and sue that person because the judge will say, well, where's the agreement? And you don't have one. So that's why I have this major role here that I really want to separate what a Lightning Network node can, can do for you with the keys still being in your custody, albeit in a hot wallet environment, versus off-chain lending where you're taking genuine counterparty risk. Now, why do I say all this? Just like my example with Walmart um, or, or any, let's say, investment-grade corporation that's borrowing money, they're going to have to borrow money at U.S. Treasuries plus a spread. And in my mind, I think Lightning Network nodes and the interest rate that we can get on it can be used as that type of baseline reference rate. So if I am going to lend money, let's say, on an exchange, so that people can short Bitcoin, et cetera, or whatever they want to do with it. I'm going to say, you know what? I want uh, an interest rate above today's LNRR setting. Let's say LNRR is today is 1%. I'm just making something up here. Why would I ever lend to an exchange at 0.75%? To me, it doesn't make sense because 
I'm taking counterparty risk, but I'm getting less than I could if I uh, short-term leased it to the Lightning Network um, in, a, in a way where if with good payment channel management, I know I can get my Bitcoin back uh, within time. So that's why I think that LNRR is uh, potentially very exciting here, is that we can set a baseline interest rate for off-chain lending because it gives that relative value comparison where you know, I'm going to lend to you at LNRR plus 1% and I'm going to lend to person B at LNRR plus 2% because I think the person B is less credit worthy than person A, which is, which is um, less, which is LNRR, it would be a lower risk investment than, than both of those things. I hope I'm not going too fast here. So before I get into uh, some concerns, can I answer any questions? Sure. I don't see the difference between a Bitcoin loan and whatever uh, contract deals you make with the borrower versus a standard loan when I go to the bank and they, they think maybe on the risk factor and they loan me that money. They're not guaranteed of getting it back unless I pay them back or they sue me to an agreement. That's right. So, what, what to do? I, no difference. Okay, so I thought that's exactly what you just explained in terms of the risk factors of the Bitcoin loan versus. What I'm saying is that to the right of this line is like your regular real-world lending. To the left of this line is a very unique, unprecedented uh, situation in the history of money where you can have no counterparty risk. Now let me go back to the dollar real quick. If you have dollars, let's say you have uh, you know, millions of dollars, not, not some, some petty cash, but you have millions of dollars. You have counterparty risk regardless of where that money is. It's either a liability on the bank's balance sheet or you take that cash and you buy treasuries with it and then the government is your counterparty risk. Uh, so, answer your question there. there the, to the right of it is the real world lending where you need contracts and court of law and rule of law, but to the left of it, you do not. And that's what's unique about Bitcoin and my point here is to show that the Lightning Network reference rate or the Lightning Network interest that you can gain is to the left side of that wall. And that is very unique. Income with no counterparty risk. Again, not no risk. Just It's a different type of risk that you can manage yourself. It's not somebody that can just default to you. Uh, anybody else have a question? Sure. No. Lightning Network is, uh, is on Bitcoin. Um, I'm not sure. Litecoin does have a Lightning Network? Yeah. They do because they have SegWit and it's enabled, but Litecoin, not talking about Litecoin in any way here. Okay, so uh, some concerns that I have. One of them is privacy. Now, if you are going to publish your realized rate of return on your lightning node, there are privacy concerns there. So not everybody is going to want to do this. I don't know how this is going to unfold, but go back, going back to the LIBOR example, banks publish the rate to each other. It might be to their detriment a little bit um, because they would rather, they would rather, you know, the rest of their competitors, they're, they're all competitors with each other. They would rather their competitors not know 
what, they, what their funding rate is in the market, but they do so because it's for the benefit of the capital market. So I do have some privacy concerns here, and again, with uh, little to no computer science background, I'm not actually sure how uh, this mechanism of publishing interest rates to each other is going to work. I'm also not sure um, how provable it is. Now, in my in my head, I think that if you can you can hash your principal, you can hash the fees that you earned, and you can hash the block time that it took to do so. There's no reason why we can't have some sort of cryptographically provable realized rate of return on your Lightning node. But that is computer science beyond my understanding right now, so I'm hoping to have some of these questions answered uh, if we can actually publish this information, and if we can, uh, the privacy concerns of the, of the Lightning node operators that um, are actually earning interest here. Uh, and that's the, the, the second there. And then the third is a concern of manipulation. So the reason LIBOR was manipulated was so that those banks could make a little bit more money on the loans that they were issuing at LIBOR plus a credit spread. So, you know, if Lightning Network nodes are publishing interest rates, potentially they can game the system to bump the rate in their favor one way or the other. Uh, that's just something that I wanted to bring up because uh, I think it is a, a concern there. Okay, the future. So one of the things that um, is really exciting to me uh, is this idea of hashed credit ratings. Now, in an, let's go back to the off-chain lending example where you're taking counterparty risk and uh, if the person defaults, you'll have to go through your court system uh, and hopefully you had a good on-paper contract there uh, to get your money back. But what if in that example where I lend the guy one Bitcoin on the street and he pays me back 1.1 Bitcoin to my receipt address, what if those transactions are linked together through some sort of hash and he now can prove to the entire network that he's creditworthy? And then the next day he takes another loan and he pays it back and all of a sudden you have uh, an on-chain verifiable credit-worthy system, like uh, our FICO scores, or like, in, uh, or like uh, credit ratings from the, from the ratings agencies. Now, we all know what happened with the rating agencies uh, during the financial crisis. They're stamping AAA on absolute garbage, um, and it was, uh, this was a huge contributor to the financial crisis where entities are buying AAA securities that are really junk and worth 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar. Um, hashed credit ratings could, could solve some of those problems. I don't know how this can happen. I don't even know if anybody is out there working on it. Uh, if you do, please let me know. But I think this could be a game changer uh, for the real world lending portion of the Bitcoin capital market. Uh, Bitcoin denominated banks to go up to the top, so uh, I don't even know if Lightning Network nodes want to be called banks. Um, bank seems to be um, not the prettiest word in Bitcoin because it kind of is against the ethos or the this and the Fed mentality that you know Michael was talking about. Um, that's part of the ethos here. It's the alternative to central banking, and um, so 
let's take that word bank out, but maybe the Lightning Network nodes uh, can, can develop into that type of entity um, in the Bitcoin world. Debt capital markets in your palm. So this is my vision for the future here. In your palm, you have hopefully one day a fully validating node, a Lightning Network node, and then access to off-chain lending with a hashed provable credit rating system where you know that money is leaving your Bitcoin wallet and you might never, never see it back. But the person that you're lending it to, whether or not you know that person, uh, has some sort of Bitcoin native credit worthiness that he's proven, he or she has proven through time by paying back Bitcoin loans that are linked together in some way, shape, or form. And then, of course, global reserve currency status. This is the goal here. This is what I you know, would like to see from Bitcoin, and I think that we need capital markets to develop. We need a, lang a new language. We can use analogies from the US dollar and the rest of the traditional finance world, but we should have new language to describe what a Lightning Network bank looks like or what hashed credit ratings looks like in a truly Bitcoin native framework. Uh, and so I think that a lot of these um, ideas uh, can hopefully contribute to Bitcoin fulfilling its destiny as the soundest, hardest money the world has ever seen and uh, potentially being one of the or potentially the reserve currency of the world. Where right now, Bitcoin is a reserve asset. I know Tour is going to talk about that. Uh, I do believe Bitcoin is already a reserve asset because people own it as one, uh, whether it's for a savings vehicle or a speculative investment or a currency hedge like our friends in Latin America that are uh, experiencing devals uh, at a very rapid pace. So, um, reserve currency status, hopefully one day we'll get there. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that session. If you want to find out more about Nick, I've recorded an interview with him on Crypto Cousins Podcast. You may want to check that out and listen to that. And you can also follow him on Twitter at TimeValueOfBTC. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing the BitBlock Boom podcast with your friends. It'd be great if you'd consider giving the show a five-star review on iTunes or, or whatever app you're using to listen. The next episode of the podcast will feature Mark Hopkins, and that's going to be another great show. Like I said, that's from last year's, not 2018's event. Thanks for listening to this episode of BitBlock Boom. Make sure and take a look at this year's lineup, like I said earlier, at bitblockboom.com. And I hope I get to see you in Dallas, Texas. BitBlock Boom! I hope you enjoyed that. Now, if you want to find out more about Philippe, I've recorded an interview with him on the Crypto Cousins podcast. You may want to listen to that. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Felipe Hoshia, which I know I'm pronouncing wrong, but I'll spell it. It's at F-E-L-I-P-E-H-U-I-C-O-C-H-E-A. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and sharing the BitBlock Boom podcast with your friends. It'd be great if you could give the show a five-star review on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen. Now, the next episode will feature Nick Baccia, who's going to give a really great session. I mean, it was really great. So thank you for listening to this episode of the BitBlock Boom podcast. Make sure and look at next year's lineup of speakers at bitblockboom.com. And I hope I see you 
at the next BitBlock Boom Conference in Dallas, Texas. Until next week, bye.